This episode of the podcast is particularly special for me because it's the first time I've had a guest make a second appearance, and I also just had a lot of fun with the discussion. I speak with Ian Morris from Stanford University, who's an archaeologist, a historian, an author, and an expert on all things large-scale history. We discuss geopolitics from the perspective of the last 10,000 years of history. So questions like, can governments exist without the threat of violence? Is diversity a strength or a weakness from the perspective of the stability of states? Does the EU need to federate and build its own army in order to stay together long term? How do states use soft power to control and manipulate their own populations as well as the populations of their adversaries? And what impact are we really able to have here on Earth in a brief time? You know, should we live for pleasure or should we strive for impact? This is a really good one and a discussion I really enjoyed, one of my favorites. So I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens I think in order to write a book like this, you actually have to genuinely love the British story, right? You have to mm, yes. love the history of Britain, um, which I, I really got. I mean, you put personality into this, which is which is really nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, should we should we start yes, officially? Yes. Yes. So, Ian Morris, welcome back on the podcast. So, you're officially the first guest to come on for a second time. Oh well, thank you. I feel very honoured. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I so before beginning, I, I do want to plug your book because I, I I do think it's fantastic. So, <laughs> so for people who don't have uh, who aren't watching on camera, this is uh, Geography is Destiny. It's it's out um, in July seventh or June seventh. It it came out in Britain in May. It already came out there. The US version is coming out on the seventh of June. Yeah, it's it's. It might be the most ambitious book about Brexit that's ever going to be written. <laughs> so 10,000 years. It's the only Brexit book that cares about Caesar and the Normans. Probably. Well, yeah, who, who knows? <laughs> but um, all right. So the goal of today, I really want to get an idea of, of what contemporary issues look like from the perspective of the last 10,000 years. So the, you know, the, the big history. And I'm particularly interested in things like soft power and, and how mm -hmm. narratives and stories shape history, as well as how geography and these big external factors uh, shape history. So, so the ultimate goal is to get to those uh, points. But I wanted to start somewhere a little bit more local. And I want, I want to start with a question that I think will give some better idea of who you are as a person and how you got interested <laughs> in uh, big history. And and so the question is, I, I noticed on reading your book, you have this throwaway comment where, where you, t you, you mentioned that you were doing an excavation as a, as a school child, as a schoolboy. Mm -hmm. So as a schoolboy, you were digging out some abbey or something. And it just got me thinking, how does a schoolboy get access to digging, a, you know, how do you get access to digging at a, an old religious site, uh, you know, before you're, you've got some cert certificates or some qualifications? <laughs> how, how do you end up in that sort of a situation? Yeah, well, every, every country does archaeology differently. And um, in the British system, um, in the old days, like when I was a schoolboy, it was very decentralized. So you've got all these little local archaeological units and um, local museums run their own projects. And uh, they will often take volunteers. If you've got the sense to like, go and ask them, it's actually quite easy to go on a weekend and help out. And you know, being a teenager, I, I did not have the sense God gave a flea. But luckily, my parents were great fans of education. And they both left school at 13. 
13 and my dad had gone to work down a coal mine at 13 and then he got out of the coal mine by getting qualifications. So great fans of education. And it, it sort of scared the pants off them when I told them I thought I wanted to be an archaeologist because they rightly saw this, this is not really the path to fame and fortune. But they thought, OK, well, if this is what the lad wants to do, we should help him out with this. So they picked up the phone called a few um, of the local museums and uh, one of them rather foolishly says, oh yeah, sure, send him along, yeah, bring him along on Saturday, we'll, we'll put him to work digging. And so um, I got to dig on you know, quite a few local excavations while I was still in school. And it was, it was a really good thing. Um, you know, as a, a schoolboy, the directors would have to be mad to trust you to actually do anything. <laughs> um, but you still, you, you pick up a bunch of stuff by osmosis really, because you know, archaeology, it's one of those things where you can teach quite a lot about doing it in the classroom but in the end of the day you 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 look at all these diagrams on the blackboard of superimposed layers, all these things cross-cutting is all very clever and serious. And then you go out there and you're standing face to face with mud. And you know, this is what it's all about, getting into the mud and figuring out what's happening. And so you, you go along on these things and you you learn a lot. Um, and I learned a particular lot actually at that excavation um, at the Abbey. Uh, just, just a lot of very strange things happened there. Like, like what can you, like what's, the, <laughs> yeah. what's strange um, for an archaeologist? Strange for an archaeologist. Well, um, some of them are not so strange for an archaeologist because uh, there are things that happen all the time on excavations, but some of these actually were a bit weird. And um, so one of them, the highlight of the whole thing was um, in these Catholic abbeys in medieval England, they would bury um, the monks when they die. They bury them different places according to their standing within the abbey. And so if you're a really big mucky muck, you get buried right up by the altar in the church and um, your body gets put in a lead coffin. And these lead coffins are completely hermetically sealed. So nothing gets in or out, which means that you're very interested in the archaeologist because there's a potential to do all kinds of things with the body in there. But um, there are certain risks involved in this. And so with this one, you know, these lead coffins, they weigh multiple tons. So you've got to get big, heavy equipment in to get it out of the ground. And so they bring in this big crane put chains around the coffin. They're winching it up. What they don't, oh, and they say like a big event, so the, the Lord Mayor is there and all kinds of other dignitaries are there. They're winching it up. And what they don't realise is the lead coffin is cracked. And so two things result from this. One is that there has been some air getting in and out and the poor old Abbey, uh, Abbot, his body has decayed in there. He's now turned to liquid. The other thing that happens is as they winch it up, the strains, you know, anything you've tried to jack up a car, anything you suffer, it puts all these different strains on things. The strains start to pull the crack wider and the coffin kind of explodes and the Lord Mayor gets drenched in 600 year old Abbot juice, which as a you know, 14 year old boy, <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen, but it was actually turned out to be pretty bad. That had all kinds of repercussions for our permits to dig and stuff like that. But um, Lord Mayors don't really like Abbot juice drenchings. So, so yeah, weird stuff happens on excavations. Is is that still dangerous after six hundred years? You know, can you still get disease from a body that's that old, or or not? Yeah, it, it depends. I mean, it's super super unlikely. It is sort of possible, but super, super unlikely. And does it 
smell or is it completely yes. sort of denatured? It <laughs> smells okay. terrible, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, all the stinks, uh, you know, the body rots, it smells really bad. And all the stinks have been trapped in there. I mean, a little bit was getting out because of the crack, but uh, basically everything is trapped in there. And sometimes even using much more mundane things, like when I was digging in Sicily a few years ago, we um, we had, for an archaeologist, this is one of the most exciting things that can happen. We found the town's garbage dump. And we were like, oh boy, we're over the moon now. Because garbage dumps are great um, because obviously people are throwing all their garbage out there. So there's all these food scraps are concentrated in one place. So it makes it very easy and to get um, a good snapshot of what people are eating. And then also you, you're going out there on a daily basis, tossing more stuff on. So you've got this beautifully stratified deposit uh, with the layers, you're in chronological order. You can peel them off, date them, know exactly what's going on in each layer. But it really smelled. Every morning at a certain point, the sun would get to a certain angle and it would come, the, the sunlight would shine down into the trench. And as it heated up in the bottom of the trench, it really smelled. It would just decay and rot. That really like surprises three, me. 3,000-year-old poo-poo. Wow. And I say, wow, like it's an, it is sort of amazing that it mm. still it has some impact after that much time. Yeah, the flies loved it. <laughs> the fly, poor students I was sent down this trench to dig it out. The flies were just crawling over them all day long. But I guess if it's been sealed, then there's been no access to it, and that's the reason yeah. why. So how do you get so how do you get access to a site like say you now do you have mm -hmm. certificates what what are the qualifications are you uh, do you do you fight with other archaeologists for the good <laughs> sites or you know <laughs> how does that work yeah, yes, we do. Yes, this is the, the main thing that archaeologists do is fight with each other. It fills most of our hours. But um, it varies enormously depending on what country you're in. And some countries are like say Greece, um, Italy, Turkey especially, some countries really, really centralised. Everything is very bureaucratic and even the tiniest decisions have to go to um, you know, central government panels in the capital city. And uh, I, we, when I was digging in Greece, when I was just a student at that point, um, on this one excavation in the 1980s, the director had to keep flying back to Athens to consult with them over whether we could even open a new trench. There was a, such a tight degree of control over what was going on. But other places, it's sort of a free-for-all. Um, and, and some countries flip back and forth. Like Britain went through a phase where, like when I was in school, it was very decentralised and it became much more centralised and Whitehall took over almost all the permitting and everything. Now it's gone back to very decentralised. And so... If I wanted to do a field project in Britain now, um, I would go and I would sort of wander around a little bit, talk to people, find out what people knew about things that they'd been disturbed by um, field work, you know, digging or whatever. Um, if I identified a site that I thought was worth pursuing, I would go talk to the landlord. And if I made an agreement with a landlord about access to the land, and if I had at least some sort of reasonable qualifications as an archaeologist, all I've got to do then is fill out some paperwork and I'm good to go. Whereas in the old days, you had to go through this years-long process of getting approval. And so it, it varies enormously. I see. So if you, if you could go anywhere in the world, so you get your dream location, what would you actually want to dig up? Like, there's no competition. You just get to put your flag down mm. and off you go. Well, in the old days, I could have answered that question really really easily but the problem with moving to global history and really long-term history is that like everything becomes interesting so um the i i've always got an answer for that but it varies depending on what i happen to be working on at the moment so what i'm, I'm working on at the moment for uh, the, the new book that i'm working on is uh 
looking again at the origins of agriculture in the Near East. And so now if I had my druthers, I would probably go to what we call Natufian sites, which are sites dating between about 12,500 and about 10,500 BC, uh, which is when we don't, we don't really know what's going on, but it's, uh, you get them sort of spreading from Israel up into northern Syria, Lebanon kind of area. Um, and uh it's not entirely clear whether these people were really beginning to do farming or whether something else is going on. And it's just really, really cool and fascinating. So that's where I would go right now. But if we talk again next month, I'll probably have a different answer. Do we understand how agriculture did begin? Was it sort of a gradual process? or, or the, th- the reason why I, I'm curious about this is because, you know, as far as I understand things, Originally, you know, agriculturalists weren't necessarily any healthier than hunter-gatherers. And, no, no. you know, there's a huge time sink in actually going ahead and, and making a farm. And, and it's it's not clear that farmers were better off than hunter-gatherers in any way. So how did this transition? What was the benefit mm. to the first movers? Yeah, well, this is something where um, we've seen a lot of new thinking in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, the sort of answers we had back in the 1990s, like say, uh, you know, for, for a lot of people, what they know about the beginning of agriculture will come from a book like Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs and Steel. And when he wrote that book, it came out in 1997. When he wrote that book, it was kind of completely up to date on what all the archaeologists were saying. But that was 25 years ago. And now it's moved on dramatically. So, so 25 years ago, the thinking was, well, um, at the end of the Ice Age, around 9,500 BC, the end of the Ice Age, things warm up dramatically, of course, and um, the world gets a lot moister as well, because uh, all that water has been trapped in the glaciers, now it's released and can fall as rain and um, fertilise plants. And in what we now call the Middle East, there are certain areas where the wild predecessors of barley and wheat are, are growing just sort of naturally out in the wild. And these things start to grow a lot faster. There's just a lot more of them after the end of the Ice Age. So people start um, eating more and more of this stuff because it's more available now. And in the process of interacting with the plants, the things you do to encourage the growth, uh, they create a and a selective environment that favours the evolution of new, basically new strain, new genetically modified organisms of wheat and barley. That uh, the consequences that, that this modification has is that now. Um, with wild wheat and barley, the seeds just sort of drop off all the time. They ripen at different times, drop all over the place. With the domesticated versions, which people kind of create by accident, they don't know they're doing this, um, but they create them by going out there and cutting their wheat and barley down and replanting the seeds. The seeds will all stay on the plant until you come along and cut it down. The little stalk attaching the seed to the plant gets much tougher. The husk around it gets much stronger. So all of the seeds stay there until you come and cut them down, which means that the amount you can get from the plant goes up dramatically people begin to realize this is happening start doing things like weeding around them watering them deliberately replanting them you know, digging furrows and burying them and so um then the yields start to grow dramatically and uh, this process of genetic modification accelerates and over the course of a few centuries you go from wild plants to domesticated plants and then the population just really explodes now that that was all all seemed really straightforward and the basic motor in that story is population growth as you get more and more people in this post ice age world more and more pressure to exploit the plants more intensively leads to domestication but it now it now turns out that's actually not how it worked um and we were saying all this 25 years ago because on the bits of evidence we then had that looked to be what happened but we now know that 
people had actually started um, cultivating wheat and barley quite intensively well before the end of the Ice Age, at least 3,000 years before, and maybe as much as 12,000 years before the end of the Ice Age, they're already cultivating wheat and barley, which should have led to domestication, if the old theory is right. So, so why does this not happen? And the the, the new version of the theory is, well, there's no real change in what people do after the end of the Ice Age. People just carry on doing the kind of cultivation they've been doing before. What changes is um, the simple fact of the, the climate warming up. The, and uh, in fact, well, actually, not, not so much warming up. Uh, it gets warmer and wetter, but also the climate becomes much more stable. During the late ice age, you get these wild swings in the weather. Um, they go way, way beyond anything that we're dealing with now uh, in modern climate change. I mean, similar kinds of things, but much more extreme, um, much faster, much bigger scale. And what this meant was that probably the processes of domestication of wheat and barley did start as early as 21,000 BCE. It was underway. But um, every decade or so, you'll get some disastrous climatic thing. Your um, field of wheat that you've begun domesticating, it gets wiped out. It's set back to the starting line again. And there's just no way you can actually run this process of domestication, which takes thousands of years, we now know, to, to, to go through completely. No way you can actually run that because the climate is just too variable and too changeable. So um, it's not like we did anything clever after the end of the Ice Age, not like we started doing anything new. People just kept on doing what they'd been doing for thousands of years. But the world changed around them. And um, before they knew it, um, in fact, they probably didn't know it was happening at all. Um, their, their plants start turning into these domesticated variants. And as they do, this starts exerting new pressures on people. And um, now, because archaeologists like to say that it's not so much that humans domesticate wheat and barley. It's more that wheat and barley domesticate humans because we start having to work harder and harder and harder to create these favorable niches where wheat and barley can flow. It's just like they're telling us what to do you know, with the one little detail that we eat them and they don't eat us. <laughs> it's kind of an important detail. But other than that, um, we are responding to the cues being sent by the plants. And so we're working harder and harder. And as you mentioned about the diet thing, people's diets are worse after domestication than before. No doubt about that. But um, you've got, I mean, uh, I guess two problems you've got if you're an early farmer. One is you don't know that your diet is worse because this is a process unfolding across thousands of years. There's no way for you to know what it would be like to be a hunter-gatherer. The other one is, say you somehow did know and you wake up one morning and say, oh yeah, screw this plowing that field. That's hard work and it's boring. And I don't like it. I'm going to go and live off hunting stuff now. That sounds much more fun and much healthier. Um, you're going to last a few weeks um, because the process, once you start farming, uh, it makes it almost impossible to survive as a hunter. All the animals get driven off. You, you clear cut the forest. You get rid of all the environmental niches the hunters need. And we get, do get this interesting thing where some places we can see farmers and hunters and gatherers living alongside each other for thousands of years. So the hunters and gatherers in territory the farmers don't really want. But basically anywhere farmers want to go, they can go. Because um, one of the things domestication does is it drives this huge population increase. And so the hunter-gatherers are always outnumbered by the farmers. So, yeah, we get this an entirely new picture of the way it worked. And the, um, the sort of bottom line thing is now that we just think it took much, much longer than we, we used to think. And so it collapsed multiple times. So, so it, it yeah. sounds like, 
Okay, so that, I want to get from that. I want to spring off into sort of this big history because mm-hmm. a, a key question that I have um, is the following. You know, we like to look at history through the the eyes of the the great men. You know, the Caesars and the you know the Genghis Khans and so on. And these guys, they were successful. They they conquered their enemies. They got the girl. You know, they they built these huge empires. But then. Quite often, after they die, the empire collapses, you know, the the entire nation gets taken over by their neighbors. And so even these great men have their works undone. And from the perspective of uh, agriculture starting up and then collapsing again and starting up and collapsing again, just based off, you know, whether the weather was good, you know, whether we were going through an ice age or, you know, these external factors, I want to get some sort of a perspective on what impact does the individual have on on history? You know, do we re- is there any sense in which we actually as individuals have any real say that's long-term on, on the way that history mm-hmm. unfolds? Yeah, well, this is um, one of the questions that uh, pushed me into writing this new book, Geography is Destiny. And I had started off my career working on um, you know, reasonably focused problems. I started off working on ancient Greece, so looking at you know, across the space of a few centuries, uh, things that are going on in ancient Greece. And then as time went on, I found that if I broadened the perspective out, so I look at a bigger area, longer time scale, new answers emerge to these questions I've got about ancient Greece. Then at a certain point, about um, so 15, 20 years ago, I realized, oh, you know, I'm looking at such a big time scale and geographical scale now that what I'm actually interested in is the big questions about the whole world. You're using the whole world to come up with a a new way of looking at ancient Greece. That's less interesting to me now than just looking at the whole world and trying to talk about that. And so I wrote a series of books trying to produce these general theories of global history over the long run. And I had a a huge amount of fun doing it. Um, But then at a certain point, you're writing these books and this question that you just asked um, about the role of the individual, there's no way to avoid that question it keeps coming up you keep having to think about it and of course the the problem that you have as a global historian is that actual history is made by real people not by vast impersonal forces operating beyond anybody's ken it's actual people doing things deciding things that's what causes things to happen so um if your big global theories can't be used to explain what happens to real people in concrete situations, they're not really worth very much at all. So I've been thinking for some years, you know, what, what I should do is write a book where I look at just one particular part of the world and, um, and not maybe on the million year scale, get it down to at least a few thousand years, at least get it down that small, one particular part of the world and try to see if my grand theories about geography and other stuff, whether they can really help me understand what was going on going on there. So I'm thinking about this. And I was thinking, well, you know, Greece would be the obvious place to write about since that's where I started my career. Uh, but then um, the, the citizens of the United Kingdom decide to vote to leave the European Union. And so the day after the vote, I think, oh, of course, this is like a perfect test case for the kind of work I've been doing. Can these grand long-term geographical theories, do they actually help you understand what happened on June the 23rd, 2016 in one nation state? And so well, you know, obviously I came to the answer, yes, they do. Otherwise I wouldn't have written this book. But um, it just seemed like a perfect opportunity to think about these Think about this question, as you say, the role of the individual, the role of culture, the role of institutions in um, affecting change and how, how the individual, the institutions fit in between the vast and personal forces and the, sort of the very important persons like the Genghis Khan's. 
So, so what power did kings actually have then? Because, you know, from reading your book and, and, and reading other books, it seems like kings often didn't have even a say of, of who they married, not necessarily which religion they had, even which battles they fought. So, so even the kings themselves seem to have to, you know, balance the interests of their subjects and, you know, fight off people who had equal power to themselves. So, so what was it good to be king or was it terrible? <laughs> well, you will be shocked to hear. I think the answer is, well, it depends. <laughs> it, it depends very much on who you are and when you live and so on. But the, kind of the general conclusion I came to is that you know, the title of the book, Geography is Destiny. So geography is destiny, but it's up to us to decide what to do with that destiny. And I think this is very much the case in the larger British story. That, uh, say, you look at something like, say, the, the English Reformation, the 16th century, when Henry VIII takes um, England out of the Catholic, uh, this sort of European Union that the Catholic Church has created based on the continent. Henry VIII takes England out of that um, uh, gradually during the 1530s. And, you know, as most people know, it's um, the, the proximate cause, the immediate cause for this is he needs to get a divorce from his first wife so he can marry this hottie Anne Boleyn who's younger and is going to give him babies and uh, secure the line and everything. And of course, he's just obsessed with the woman with Anne Boleyn as well. So he really wants to get this done. Pope won't let him do it. So he ends up taking England out of the Catholic Church so that he can get his divorce. However, um, the obvious question here is, well, we, so, so what would have happened if we'd had somebody else as king in England in the 1530s? Would this not have happened? And it's a you know, very good chance it wouldn't have happened because, of course, other kings were not Henry VIII. I mean, Henry VIII was completely mad. I mean, this was a bizarre guy. Other kings would not have got themselves into that sort of trouble. But you look around Europe in the 1530s, it's not like Henry VIII is the only guy taking people out of the Catholic European Union. The Swedes leave, most of the German states leave, Scotland leaves, all these people are leaving. And there's some really good reasons why they're leaving. They're operating at slightly deeper levels because Luther's theology is part of it. That is very attractive, the intellectual level, this idea. It's up to you. You can save your own soul. You don't have to have the Pope and a bunch of bishops saving your soul for you. You can do this. Um, or maybe God's already done this and you don't actually have to do anything. That's even more attractive. But money also had a huge amount to do with it. That um, by taking your country out of the Catholic Union, you got to steal all this money that the Catholic Church had stolen from you over the previous millennium. So there was just a lot of things going on. And again and again, this is what seems to happen. The, the big things that happen often are driven by the decisions of the, 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 the VIPs, the great men of history. But you get into it and you see, oh, there's all these reasons why the VIPs go down this path. And often, again, going back to England leaving um, the Catholic Church, England leaves the Catholic Church, but then England goes back into the Catholic Church, and then England leaves the Catholic Church again, and then they almost go back in again, and then they come out even more, and then they think about going back in again. It's all these back and forth, and, and this is true of almost all of these turning points. Almost none of them at the time um, seem as fixed and certain as they seem to us when we look back from four or five hundred years later. And I think there's a lot to learn from that about just how fluid reality is. 
I guess the the prime example is actually Brexit, right? Because David Cameron didn't necessarily want to leave. <laughs> no, 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 no more than Henry VIII wanted to leave the church. I mean, he spent much of his life professing his allegiance to the Pope, and it clearly tore the guy in two actually having to leave. And people have been urging him to leave, showing him how he could leave for several years before he actually did this. And the same with Cameron. I mean, Cameron did, did not want to leave the European Union. And I think he, that was kind of obvious um, listening to him speak in the year or so running up to, to what was going on. But he was trapped by problems partly of his own creation, much like Henry VIII, who got, kind of got backed into this. So, so what's your view then as someone who's not, you know, for the people who are not kings, <laughs> we're all kings, but for people who aren't kings, um, should you live for enjoyment or should you try to have impact? What's the, what's the big history um, advice along this direction? Well, I think this is one of the things where economists um, have, have kind of got it right. Um, when economics is really taking off in Europe in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, um, they start, the economists, uh, political uh, economists, as they call themselves at the time, they're scratching their heads very much about what is it all about? You know, what, what should economics be trying to do? And they come up with this wonderfully abstract way of talking about what their subject matter really is. And they say, what economics is about is, is maximizing utility. And this word utility that they sort of invent, it just means utility is just whatever appeals to you. And uh, they say there's no way for the economist to know what is the good for the human race, what is the best thing for humanity. The way ancient philosophers like Aristotle would say that the point of life is the pursuit of tokalon, the good. Aristotle and Plato would regularly say this. And then they would write lots about what what the good should be. A lot of Enlightenment philosophers in Europe, they write a lot about what the good should be and how you should live the best possible life. And the economists just sort of shrug and say, hey, pff, you know, we're all different, each to his own. And maybe your idea of the good is lying on a beach all day. Maybe my idea of the good is being president of the United States, um, which it's good that it isn't because I, you know, I wasn't born here, so I can't be. But um, everybody has their own idea of the good. Most of us are actually quite conflicted over the good. And uh, we want incompatible things. The economists start saying, well, who cares? Just let people get on with choosing the good for themselves. And um, the, the theory, of course, it gets going in the 19th century is that the marketplace is the ideal institution. When you don't know what people want, you don't know what their utility is. The marketplace is the ideal institution to allow people to pursue their own utility. And if you really value a fast car, then you're willing to pay a lot of money for the fast car. And I don't particularly care. I've got real old clunk because I don't really care about fast cars. I can spend my money on completely different things. It, it's up to me. And I frankly um, think that there's no better way to think about this. And we each have our own utility. It's foolish of anybody to try to tell us what our own utility should be, what you should want out of life. So if you, know, if you want to go out and change the world, knock yourself out, go out and do that. If you want to be a couch potato, who am I to tell you not to do that? Hmm. But I that's guess not something I learned from big history. <laughs> Well, I, the reason why I ask the question is, so right now there's various conflicts going on in the world. And for example, in Ukraine and, and various other places. Um, and one of the questions I've been thinking about is, uh, particularly when I was reading your book, 
you see these situations where territory just flips hands back and forth and back and forth. You know, England will take over northern France and then it will collapse and then France will take over southern England. And bearing this in mind and, and, you know, it it almost seems like um, there's a certain futility in in certain elements of of sort of conquest and, and defense. And so I wonder, you know, if you're an 18-year-old boy, 18-year-old guy, and your country's at war and you've only got one life, you know, under what circumstances does it make sense to actually go forward and say, look, I am going to fight for this cause, uh, cause I'm going to die in this trench. Um, you know, when, when you have a personal decision, I, I mean, this is a very real decision for some people and, and we're sitting here in sort of an academic sense asking it, but it, it, do you have some sort of... Um, is is there some some way of uh, is there some perspective that you can gain on on questions like this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I mean, if if you if you're living in Ukraine, I mean, Ukrainians um, probably understand extremely well, better than most people, that geography is destiny. That um, the, the very name of the country, Ukraine, probably comes from an old Slavonic word meaning borderlands. And if you if you've got the choice, you do not want to live in a country called borderland. Because it means everybody is going to be fighting with you. Just the geographical location of Ukraine means that having um, having Ukraine be be your friend. It, it's a, a life and death matter if you're a ruler in Russia or in Germany or Poland or the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, the old Turkish Empire. For all of these places, having a hostile Ukraine is a really, really bad thing for your country. So Ukraine is a place that has been fought over constantly for several centuries now. And a lot of the time, I mean, this is one of the things I think we do learn from history. A lot of the time, people have just not been that bothered about this. It hasn't bothered them all that much. It's not kind of offended against their utility. If you're a Ukrainian nobleman, um, having a ruler who lives in Moscow or a ruler who lives in Constantinople, it's not that big of a deal uh, through a lot of history. We see this over and over again. Ukrainians have not been particularly bothered about fighting back uh, against other people trying to take them over. Um, But in the modern world, modern world is just a very, very different sort of place. Ukrainians have had terrible experiences under Soviet rule, and they do not want to go back there again. In the early 1930s, millions of Ukrainians starved to death, an entirely avoidable famine, that Stalin, um, if he didn't actually encourage the famine, then he at the very least completely turned a blind eye to it. He was quite happy to see those Ukrainians die. So Ukrainians can be, it can be easily understood Ukrainians do not want to go back under Russian rule. And uh, Ukraine, obviously, as an independent country, is a a relatively recent invention. And um, like a lot of the time when uh, rulers say things which sound ridiculous, like when Putin says this stuff about Ukraine not being a real country, um, often it's built on something that does make sense, but then it's been spun and taken off in this very self-serving direction. Geographically, Ukraine is really two separate countries. There's a northern fairly wooded area and a southern very steppe flat dry area and historically they've been two very distinct places they get kind of bundled together more by the russians than by anybody else back in the 18th century and um so it's a relatively recent invention that ukraine is a country of its own um but in the current geopolitical context, um, it matters very, very much to many, many Ukrainians that they not fall back under Russian control. And it's something that you're very clearly a lot of Ukrainians 
when this invasion happened, they say, this is something we, we cannot live with this. If it means I die, then I die. I'm going to risk my own life because this matters so much to me. And I think we, we all know from looking around the world, um, one of the problems the United States has had in waging its proxy wars over the last 30 years is, uh, over the last 50 years, is that we don't always find people who feel that way. We, when we, um, say when the US got heavily involved in South Vietnam, found itself in a country where, from the American perspective, not enough South Vietnamese felt the way the Ukrainians do about dealing with invasions from North Vietnam. Um, way too many for the American interests, way too many South Vietnamese were saying, well, okay, so we get taken over by a communist government um, run from Hanoi. Is that really so much worse than being run by a completely corrupt capitalist government in Saigon? And a lot of people saying, well, no, maybe it's actually better. And um, so the, the South Vietnamese you know, don't behave like the Ukrainians because they're operating under a completely different set of pressures, feel very differently about something like patriotism, sovereignty, identity, very different factors to them. So um, I think yeah, this is one reason why within, within a single country, you can get some people who would happily lay down their lives for their country. In fact, that's one of the most wonderful things they can think of for their lives is to lose their life in the service of their country. And then other people who just cannot understand how anybody could feel that way. Mm. From a geopolitical context, the, you know, the current uh, situation that we have now, should small countries who are worried about their sovereignty aid Ukraine for that reason? As in, you know, if, if you're interested in your own sovereignty, then you presumably want stability in the world and so that borders remain fixed. And so is it in the interests of small African states, Australia and, and smaller nations to actually back the the smaller side here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is one of the, the big problems for any political leader. And uh, political scientists think about this by saying there's, there's basically two ways to deal with big bully countries like Russia. And um, uh, one of them they call bandwagoning and the other they call balancing. And the, the bandwagoning is approaches, you, you look at the big bully on the block um, and you say, uh, okay, I'm really scared of Vladimir Putin. Uh, or actually, a better example still would be Adolf Hitler in the 1930s in Europe. Um, countries in Eastern Europe, small countries say, I'm really scared of Hitler. Uh, he is perfectly capable of invading our country, and doing terrible things to us. I look around and I don't see much chance for our country if Hitler decides he wants to do this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bandwagon. I'm going to make nice with Hitler. I'm going to find out what he wants. Um, I'm going to kind of cut a deal with Hitler. Because my assumption will be that Hitler is looking at my country, looking at um, Romania or Czechoslovakia or whatever it might be, looking at my country and saying, I want things from them. Uh, I can get everything I want by invading them, but invading is really expensive. It's going to cost a lot of lives, a lot of money. It might not go well, as Putin is finding out. So if the rulers of Czechoslovakia come to me, say, hey, Let's make a deal. We will offer you two thirds of what you want, but it's worthwhile for you to take that two thirds and not invade us because invading us would cost more than that other third. So take this deal. Um, and if you can hash out a deal like that, then bandwagoning is often the smart move for the small countries to make. Other times though, you look at the situation and you think about, well, 
what's it going to entail for the country if we have Hitler come in? It's going to be horrendous. We don't want that. And we look around and we actually do see some credible allies out there, like Britain, France, Russia, Soviet Union. Maybe we think these are credible allies. And in that case, what we should do is balance against Hitler. And we can put together a coalition of all the little countries and Combine individually, we're much weaker than Hitler, but combined, we've got the strength to balance out Hitler. And Hitler will look around and say, okay, I'm going to back off from this whole invading thing. Um, it doesn't look like it's going to go well, so I'm just not going to do it. And so, yeah, in the 2020s, um, because what Vladimir Putin wants to do is spread the idea that balancing is not a good idea, that everyone should bandwagon with him. Whereas what um, Joe Biden wants to do, of course, is spread the idea that balancing is the way to go. If we all stick together, we can scare Putin to the point that he's not going to do this sort of thing anymore. And we see it very vividly, actually, with China in the West Pacific, that China is really, really keen never to negotiate with groups like ASEAN or any of the other alliances in in East Asia. They always want to have bilateral negotiations. So China sits down with Vietnam or Thailand. China is so much bigger than Vietnam. Vietnam or Thailand. And China can bully them and cut a deal with them, but get most of what it wants all the time without having to use force. If they have to sit down with the whole of ASEAN or the whole of um, you know, some trans-Pacific partnership or something, that's going to go much less well for China. So th this is one of these, sort of, at least the political scientists like to say, this is one of these eternal strategic factors, the, the relative weight of balancing and bandwagoning. And if you're, a, if you're going to be successful as an aggressive dictator, you want to persuade everybody that they should bandwagon. If you want to stop the dictators, you want to persuade everybody they should balance. I think this is the, the diplomatic struggle going on at the moment. Do you think these two mechanisms will eventually lead to just larger and larger and larger blocks until we eventually have, you know, the America block, the Europe block, the Asia block, and maybe the African block or the Middle Eastern block. Is is this sort of inevitable that our, our federated states are going to get larger and larger and larger? Uh, I guess I mean, I would say not inevitable. I mean, nothing, I, I, pretty much nothing in history is inevitable. We've always got choices. It's just that sometimes the odds are stacked so heavily in favor of one option that it may as well be that you have no choice. And um, you know, what, what we see over the long run, we see cycles uh, in this of consolidation and fragmentation. And the, the long-term trend has definitely been toward consolidation. The, the, um, the states and the alliances, and particularly the economic and uh, intellectual and religious systems in the world today are so much bigger than they were in the past. So the long-term trend pretty clearly has been toward consolidation. But that goes along with lots of fluctuations and um, it can be consolidating in certain ways. And yet, yet in other ways, we've got like you know, more separate nation state governments today in the world than at any time in history. And yet they function as these great big blocks. So, yeah, it go, goes in these cycles. And so you'll get um, periods when, say, you look at ancient history. Um, Mediterranean basin. You go through this cycle about 2,000 years ago where more and more of it is pulled together by the Romans, largely through conquest, but partly through diplomacy and negotiation. And leaders of independent groups saying, hey, you know, the, the Romans, again, the Romans are offering you this deal. And the deal is 
you make nice with me and you can be maybe formally become part of my empire or probably not. Probably we'll just have you as a client king and you make nice and we will give you all this stuff and you get to come to Rome and hang out and drink wine and wear a toga and go to the baths. And it's all really great. And you get to be part of this sort of global, like sort of Davos man kind of global set and hang out with these people. And this appeals a lot to a lot of the top people in Europe 2000 years ago. They, they want to be Roman. They want to be part of this Roman Empire. Uh, they're not necessarily everybody feels this way, but a lot of them want to be, and they sort of drift into the Roman orbit. Um, but then they often find it, it's actually not as great as they thought it was. And there's these forces pulling them away from it as well. And with the, the British story, we see this happening very clearly about 2000 years ago. But then at some points, the forces are more centrifugal. Like say, um, by the time you get to the fourth and especially the fifth century CE, there's all these reasons now why people in uh, regions that have been taken into the empire are starting to say, you know, I don't really think the empire is working for us anymore. And um, for all sorts of reasons, the, uh, the emperor at the centre is less able to provide the services that he claims to be offering for people on the periphery. And one of the biggest ones is, is security, that um, you know, the ancient world is a rough place and people are constantly stealing stuff from each other. And one of the parts of the deal the Romans offer is we provide security. We have this frontier. If you're on our side of the frontier, we will protect you against raids from the outside and bad stuff won't happen to you. Well, people are finding that's not true anymore. And uh, raiders are coming in all the time. We're paying all these taxes to Rome. And yet something bad happens. Nobody comes to help us. Wouldn't it make more sense? You get the, the, the big men on the frontier, the local bishops and the local lords saying, wouldn't it make more sense? Instead of paying these taxes to Rome is you just pay the taxes to me and I keep the taxes here in my castle and I will organize a local defense force. And sure, it's not as good as a Roman legion, nowhere near as good, but it's here and something bad happens and these guys can have their pitchforks and be out there within a couple of hours, whereas it's going to be months before anybody comes from the Roman Empire, if they come at all. And uh, the further people agree to this, the further people get drawn into this, um, the less money flows to the centre of the empire, the less able the emperor is to provide the services. So you get this downward spiral, fragmentation begins mm -hmm. to spread. People start saying, yeah, this whole Roman empire thing, it's it basically, it stinks. It doesn't work for us. So we don't want their horrible baths anymore. We don't want to be don't want to feel Roman anymore because it doesn't work for us. And so you go through these cycles that are up and down with all kinds of different things feed into the process, which is what makes the history so complicated. But it's actually a rather simple dynamic underlying it. So basically, where do people see um, the best options for themselves? What is their utility in these frontier situations? One of the things that interests me is I, I understand sort of roughly how it is that states use uh, hard power to grow. So, so as you said, uh, Rome offered protection to various groups, and so it was beneficial to be part of the Roman Empire. But what I don't understand so well is how you can have soft power entities, like the, 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 um, the Catholic Church, for example. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I don't understand how the Catholic Church grew to the point where it could uh, excommunicate kings and where it could, um, you know, it. it uh, what was the benefit to the first movers when the church was still small? What, what, why would you join this uh, entity at, at the outset? Yeah, well, it, 
like all institutions, the church changes enormously over time. So that by the time you get, say, to the 13th century, when you've got popes like Innocent III, who can actually bring the King of England, King Stephen, can bring bring the King of England to his, uh, King John, can bring the King of England to his knees by just saying, I'm going to excommunicate you. That is a very different situation from these first movers that you're talking about. And the first movers for the, the Catholic Church, like say, well, I'm sticking with the English case again, um, First movers for the Catholic Church, um, they they come into uh, come into England while it's still part of the Roman Empire in the fourth century. But then, when the Roman Empire in England collapses in the fifth century, um, Christianity more or less dies out in what had been the old Roman province of Britannia. And it has to be reintroduced in 597, um, almost 200 years after Britannia had tumbled out of the Roman Empire. This um, this Roman Italian monk, Augustine, <coughs> shows up in southern England and he's brought the good word with him. He's going to convert the English. And he gets there and um, starts talking to people. And um, this is a you know, pretty bloodthirsty lot of guys he's talking to, these early Anglo-Saxon kings. They are really, really violent people. Um, but he wins them over to the Catholic Church. And what he's offering them is, again, it's a deal. A negotiation goes on. And um after the fall of the Roman Empire, when Anglo-Saxons are moving into England, they, they set up these very, very small kind of chiefdoms more than kingdoms. There's dozens of these things in England, very, very, all very, very tiny. And then they all set about fighting each other, trying to emerge as the top dog and turn yourself from a chief into a big king. And this is difficult because you're beating up your neighbours and then trying to kill their chief and then persuade them that you should become their chief. That you have to persuade them to accept you as their chief. It's very difficult to do that because you've always got all these local families with long roots in the area fighting against you. And so these guys, these chiefs, they're all looking around for some edge over the neighboring chief. And here comes this guy, Augustine. And what Augustine is saying Behold, I have good news. You know, the, the Lord has spoken to us. And what the Lord says is there is eternal life for everybody who will accept this um, Catholic Church. And that, that's sort of good news in itself. That can win over quite a lot of people, the idea of eternal life for your soul. But even better, says Augustine, God appoints kings over us. And if God has appointed a king over you, if you, if you want eternal life, you've got to be a good Christian. Part of being a good Christian is accepting the kings that God has appointed to rule over you. And if you, the local chief, um, like down in Kent, which is where Augustine shows up first of all, if you, the local chief, accept Jesus Christ as your saviour, you get the backing of the biggest, richest and most coherent institution in Europe at this point. You get the backing of the church um, and we start telling everybody that if they mess with you they're messing with god messing with you it's not treason it's not a political crime it's a crime against the entire cosmic order messing with you threatens to bring down the entire universe don't do that it's really really bad Plus, to give a little more oomph to the, this message of don't mess with the king whom the lord has appointed over you if you become a Catholic king, you now have access to all these conferences of other Catholic kings. You now have access to the daughters of all the Catholic kings. You can marry them, which you can't do if you're a pagan. You can marry into the royal family of France, which is so much more powerful than anybody in England. Has all this wealth, all this sophistication, all this charisma, all these things that can impress people. You potentially get to draw on their military might. You also get to draw on the institutional 
powers of the church. And, and at the end of the sixth century in England, very few people can read and write. But if you want to be a powerful king, you've got to have tax systems. You've got to tax people. You've got to keep records. Mm -hmm. The church provides you with monks who can read and write, who set up schools in your kingdom to teach more people to read and write. And you can have all of this if you just accept Jesus as your savior with a couple more details attached to it. There's always strings, a couple more strings attached to it. One of the strings is you must set up the church in your kingdom. So that means you've got to hand over a lot of property to us within your kingdom. You're surrendering some of your sovereignty to us, the Catholic Church, in return for which you get this grander sovereignty as part of the Catholic Church. And um we surrender some of your identity to us because you're no longer just Kentish, you're now Christian as well. And so we, the church, get to tell your people some of what they can and cannot do. And you surrender um, control over your top guys because your um, lords and knights and so on will now become part of the Catholic Church. So we, the church, begin to exercise control over them. It's like you're handing over parts of your kingdom to Italians, but in return, we're offering you this deal. And as long as you think the deal is a good deal, then you will want to join the church. And it's like, I mean, it's actually, it's very like the balancing and bandwagoning. The more chiefs who decide to become Christian kings, the more difficult it becomes for other chiefs to stay out of the organization. And once it begins to start rolling. You get this just tidal wave of Christianity running through the ruling classes in the old province of Britannia. And within the space of a century, you know, you almost all, well, actually within a, a century of Augustine coming, all of them have become Christians. And that's not the end of the story. There's a whole lot more goes, goes on as well. But um, it's all about making a deal. And once the deal has succeeded, then the soft power has enormous clout and going against the church starts to become this very, very difficult thing. But early on, the church has got to be constantly negotiating, constantly cutting these deals with, with these kings. So it was quite sly, actually. <laughs> You can look at it in that way. Um, and of course, this is the thing you've got to remember. It's very tempting for historians to get into the very cynical side of this, because some of these guys really were cynical. I mean, extremely cynical. Um, the, the, the famous Sutton Hoo ship burial in England, probably from the 630s, is this King Raidwald of East Anglia, who is an Anglo-Saxon king who, um, who was sort of Christian. Um, and so... Uh, he goes to his grave, though, and in his grave, there's all this very Christian stuff. He has christening spoons in there inscribed with the names of Saul and Paul, you know, the two different names of St. Paul. A lot of Christian imagery in there, and yet it's also full of weapons, and it's surrounded by what look suspiciously like human sacrifices. And it's very much like <laughs> Raidwald. Um, well, if we didn't know who it was, we might say, oh, Raidwald was just a little confused over the finer details of this Christianity thing. Like you know, a lot of kings have been over the ages, a little confused. But we actually have an account of Raidwald in, um, in the Venerable Bede's history of the English church, when he says, you know, Raidwald, he was like a real flip-flop guy. One minute he's a, a good a Christian as you can get, next minute he's not Christian at all. He's playing both sides against each other. So it's easy to be cynical about these guys. And often it's, it's right to be cynical. But I think what we sometimes forget, because so many historians in the modern world are not particularly religious people, we often forget that people really did believe this stuff. And um, mm -hmm. yes, they're cynical, but they are often they are deep believers as well. I mean, a lot of these 
early Anglo-Saxon guys who are embracing the faith and joining the, the Catholic Church, they do something which is absolutely not in their own interest. You can say it's in the interest of the ruling family going down the road, but not in their own interest. They renounce their thrones. They get accepted by the church and say, you are anointed, you are now a Christian king. Anyone who messes with you is messing with God. And they say, oh, great, that is so fantastic that I'm going to give up my throne. And I'm going to become a monk and I'm going to go and live in a monastery somewhere. And I'm going to learn to read and write because hardly any of these guys can read. Learn to read and write. And I spend the rest of my days copying out the Bible. That is that is my utility. That is what I really, really want. And that is good for the royal family. And you uh, because having a really holy guy as former king is really good for you. That's one of the, the top things you've got to advertise um, the piety of your royal family. But it's not so good for the guy himself. You know, he ceases to be king. His son takes over. He ceases to be king. And maybe some of these guys are so in love with their sons that they will give up their own power willingly. But, you know, on balance, that has not been the pattern for kings through the ages. They tend, tend to want to kill their sons rather than love them. And so, yeah, I think you have to accept that people really did believe this message. It's not just cynicism. So did the church put a cap on how powerful you could become? Because it's got to balance the power of all the different nation states, right? So does it say, now, France, you are becoming way too powerful, and so I'm going to crush you? You know, they don't want any one nation to become as powerful as the institution itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the power of the Pope and the power of the kings are two very different things. And there is a lot, often a lot for the Pope to get by seeing really friendly kings become really powerful because they can do things for him. It's like the the Pope, if the Pope needs to have somebody crushed, the Pope can't militarily crush people himself. He's got to get somebody else to do that for him. So it's like, again, a very common kind of problem that political scientists spend a lot of time worrying about. Um, It's like, they call it the principal agent problem. That If you are the guy in charge, you're the Pope, the principal, who by definition, you're the guy in charge because God says so. you need to get things done. But if you are the Pope or the CEO of a big corporation or whatever, you can't actually do all the things that need to be get done. You have to delegate power to agents who work for you. And you've got to delegate enough power that the agents can actually do what you want, but not so much power that the agents can start standing against you. And this is a particular problem for the Pope when his kind of power, like the the power to move people's consciences and to um, get them to want to want what the Pope wants, which is classic definition of soft power, very different from the power of the King of France or the King of England. So again, constant negotiations back and forth. So like when um, King John in England in the early 13th century really annoys the Pope, Pope wants to get rid of him, but the Pope can't actually do that himself. But by excommunicating King John, the Pope is sending out a message saying, all of the barons in England who are tied to King John by these oaths of loyalty, well, your oaths of loyalty are now dissolved because John is outside the church and these oaths of loyalty are guaranteed by God. So when John is outside the church, the oaths don't work anymore. So you are now perfectly free to go kill King John. 
God isn't going to make a peep about that if you go kill King John, or at least depose King John. And he can say to the King of France, if you want to invade England, because you know all these kings are intermarried, they've all got claims on each other's thrones, you want to invade England, you're going to find that I, the Pope, will smile very favourably on your claim to the throne of England. So you might want to think about that. And so the Pope is, again, he's always manoeuvring. He doesn't want to see these kings get too powerful, as you say, because then the the stronger they get, the more difficult they are to influence to do things for you. But they can't get too weak either, because then nobody's going to get anything done for you. So yeah, it's a difficult job being Pope. And actually what makes the Pope job really difficult, and and in this regard different from being CEO, is like nobody is ever going to say that a CEO should be voted out of office because he or she has made too much money for the company. This is bad. We're too rich now. We don't like that. That's going to happen. But if you're Pope, um, your power comes from being the emissary of a man who owned nothing and died a horrible death to save others. And if you are the richest man on the planet, that is kind of difficult to square with vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And of course, a lot of these Popes were not too chaste either. Very difficult to fit these different things together. And basically, the more successful you are as a pope at manipulating kings to work for you, the more difficult it becomes to convince anybody that you actually are righteous and worth following. And so it's a really difficult job to be pope. Is this initially how the crack started to form and the institution fell? What was the, so if that's how it builds up, what collapses it? Yeah, it goes through cycles. And again, I, I, I keep saying this, but that, that's because what does ha- that does happen. Um, it goes through cycles, and each cycle is different from each other cycle, different forces involved. But each time it's the same basic underlying premise, the, the perpetual problem of soft power, that uh, the more soft power succeeds, uh, the more it undermines itself by turning into hard power. And so, you, yeah, you get these regular crises of the church. And Sometimes they solve them very successfully. Sometimes they don't. And uh, it's sort of built into the church, really. That, um, you as Pope or as a really powerful bishop, you make the church run by persuading kings and barons that they need to buy into this organization in order to save their eternal souls. And also that it's got all these perks and benefits for them, buying into the organization. And um, when they buy into the organization, Lands changes hands, um, castles change hands, the church takes over lots and lots of stuff. But the church can't actually run a lot of this stuff because it's church, it's just not able to do this stuff. And so the only way you can run a lot of the stuff you get from a king is by putting local people in charge for you. And so you will bring in the younger sons of local laws, bring them into the church, make them bishops or whatever, and put them in charge of things, because that is the only way to make this operation run. The problem is a lot of these younger sons of barons are not educated kids. They are wild, bloodthirsty sex maniacs who are drunk all the time. And people are constantly complaining about it. And um, there's this one story that gets repeated a lot in the, the English sources that you get bishops in the church who can't tell the difference between um, Jesus's brother Jude and Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus. They don't know the difference between these two guys. And yet these are the people who are being put in charge of, uh, again, of dealing with um, the fate of Englishmen's eternal souls. So this is a real problem for the church. They're constantly getting cries to renew the church and cleanse the church. 
And a lot of the skill in being Pope is how you deal with these challenges and threats. Because the Popes themselves are very vulnerable to these challenges because the Popes tend to be the younger sons of noblemen in the city of Rome who get put on the uh, on the on the, the papal throne because it's a good way for a local powerful family to control the church and so the popes themselves are not above criticism uh, so they're very worried about reform movements but on the other hand reform movements can be very good for the church because they can sometimes allow you to remove powerful local bishops who don't want to do what you want and put in continental people who are more under your thumb. And so it's like so many examples of this sort of thing throughout history. It's a challenge that you can turn it into an opportunity if you're Pope, if you're really, really good at this. And sometimes it works really well for the church, like in the in the 10th century, in the run-up to the year 1000, there's a kind of Y1K crisis. And you, you know, some of you are going to be old enough to remember the Y2K crisis in 1999, this great anxiety that all the computers in the world, their clocks have only got two digits for the year on their, their calendars. And so when we come up to December 31st, 1999, when we hit midnight, the clocks are all going to set, reset to row zeros and all the computer systems in the world are going to crash, which turned out to be a minor problem <clears throat> that could be fixed very, very easily. Because something a bit like this in the Catholic Church, we're coming up to the year, uh, to December 31st, 999. When it gets to be midnight, Jesus is going to come back. The second coming is going to happen at the millennium, which is why you know, we talk about extreme religious cults mean millenarian because this idea that the millennium everything resets and so this idea gets really widespread and so you get this huge push we got to reform the church before jesus shows up and jesus is going to look around and he's going to see all these dudes we put into these top bishop positions say this was not what i had in mind and jesus is going to be very angry about this so we've got to reform the church before midnight on december 31st and so you get this wave of, of church reform going and these intense struggles within all the Catholic countries to get control of the reform movement. And generally, the popes do really well at that. But then 300 years later, when you're getting another wave of this, stuff, they handle it much worse. And you start to get fragmentation of the church and a much more national kinds of church just developing. So, yeah, again, just it's really difficult to be pope. Is this... Uh... Was this uh, the movements of Martin Luther and these guys? Is, is what was the one question I've always had is, and one thing I really want to understand. So maybe you can <laughs> uh, sort of explain this to me. Is was it important that the Bible remain in Latin in order for the Pope to maintain his power? Once once the book became available, it sounds like they wanted to educate people, but only to a certain level. Why was it important that the, um, the, the sort of lower classes, the peasants, didn't have access to the word of God in such a way that they themselves could read it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, it's actually not that important. Um, Latin is a liturgical language because the church is the Roman Catholic Church. And by being able to read and speak Latin, you belong to an international set. So it's a bit like you know, be, being an English speaker in the world today. If you want to be a really successful businessman in India or China or whatever, it really helps if you can speak English and go to Davos and hobnob with all the other English speaking guys. So very much like that in the church. And there's not much pressure for centuries and centuries, not much pressure to keep um the Bible in uh, in Latin. It's just that 
Uh, it's more of a question of why would anybody bother to translate it? Because if being literate means being able to read Latin, that's really what it means. So there's very, very few people out there who are literate in Anglo-Saxon, but not Latin. They just You don't do that. Um, it's kind of pointless because everything's being done in Latin at the top levels. So the church, be, the, the, the Bible being in Latin only becomes an issue when you start getting more people able to read it. And so you get this big push starting well before Martin Luther, really, a couple of year, hundred years before Luther, toward um, some people saying, you yeah, know, the church is corrupt. The church is not working very well for us anymore. So what we need is to educate a lot of people who can read English and put the Bible into English as well. And you're seeing similar things in France and Spain and other countries too. And there are actually only a few forerunners of this much, much earlier. King Alfred the Great in England back in um in the late end of the ninth century. He is like centuries ahead of his time. He, he's fighting this life and death struggle with the Vikings. And he says, one of the big things I've got to do is make concrete a sense of Englishness against this Viking threat. And the, only, the way I see to do this is to reinvent myself as a new kind of Christian king. And to reinvent the English people as a new kind of Christian people, I want to institute mass literacy in English, and I will translate the Bible into English and translate the great works of the Church Fathers into English, and I will actually do this myself, and not just rely on other people. I'm going to do this myself. This is how seriously I take it. And this is part of this thing I was mentioning earlier, but these guys really did believe in this. They were very cynical and manipulative, but they really, really believed in what they were doing too. And so Alfred studies to read and write with the top people in, in Europe, the top teachers in Europe. He starts translating the Bible and other things into English, starts pushing mass literacy. And the Pope has zero problems with this because this is in no way a threat to papal sovereignty or to Alfred's identity as a Catholic king. It's only when you get into this very changed world in the 14th, 15th centuries that Popes start worrying seriously about vernacular Bibles and people are able to read the Bible in their own language. And all of a sudden, um, pushing mass literacy then, it starts to have a very different set of political implications from what it had back in Alfred's day. So again, a lot of these things, it, it depends on the context. I see. This is sort of, I, I want to um, switch focus to geography, and this is sort of reminded me of a particular um, thing I want to ask about, which is, so to start with, by geography, you don't mean mountains and rivers necessarily. You more mean a more abstract notion for geography, right? Which depends on the technology and the social structures that are in, in play at the time. Uh, is, what, what, how should I think of geography in this big uh, historical way? Yeah, well, geography drives history. And um, in a sense, I think everybody knows that. Geography drives history. But the reason that history comes out of that process in such a complicated way is that while geography drives history, history drives what geography means. And so the geography of, of the British Isles or Australia or Tibet or you know, any part of the world you want to look at, the geography, the physical geography hasn't changed all that much over the last few thousand years since the, the water stopped rising at the end of the Ice Age and the, the rivers sort of settled down a little bit. Hasn't changed all that much. But what it means for the people that live there has changed out of all recognition. 
And this, I think, this is the secret to understanding the British story, that um, there's sort of two basic geographical facts in British history. And one is the fact that after the waters rose, about 10,000 years ago, um, at the end of the Ice Age, <coughs> after the waters rose, the British Isles become islands. Before that, they haven't been islands. They've been part of the European mainland because so much water is locked up in the glaciers that the sea level is like 100 metres lower than it is now. So the British Isles obviously are islands. And this is one of the fundamental facts of British geography and history. But the other fundamental fact is that the British Isles are extremely close to the European continent, 34 kilometres away. Way, really, really close. And so, in a sense, British history, 10,000 years of it, it's been this back and forth between the importance of insularity and the importance of proximity to the continent. And these keep changing their meanings. And the meanings are driven largely by um, the level of technology that's in use and the kinds of organization that are in use that are themselves driven by the geography, but then feedback into the geography. And, you know, British history, really complicated thing. Um, you know, thousands and thousands of books have been written about it, but it actually breaks down to three very simple phases, uh, uh, which are driven by the geography and the meanings of geography. And the first of these phases, which lasts right up until just 500 years ago, and um, Britain, the British Isles, even though they're islands, they are basically still part of the continent. The English Channel is more of a highway than a barrier. And um, this is because the levels of technology allow people to cross the English Channel, but they don't allow anybody to put ships into the channel and close the channel down. Um, controlling the seas and the sense that modern strategists talk about it, denying the use of the sea to somebody, that is just not possible before 500 years ago, because there are no ships that can do that. You can't blockade an enemy fleet in its harbour or anything. Plus, you don't have governments able to raise the funding that would pay for that sort of fleet. Technology and organisation mean that British Isles' proximity to Europe always trump uh, its insularity because the English Channel functions like a highway. Anyone who gets to the continental side can get over to the British side uh, and the reverse as well. So it's, it's its highway. Then about 500 years ago, that changes dramatically. You start to get new ships, galleons in particular, that really can stay at sea for months and months and months. If you have a fleet of galleons, you can blockade an enemy in his harbour. He can't get out to threaten the British Isles. Um, you can cut